I can't find the book of Galatians. Um, <laughs> shut up. Just talk amongst yourselves until I find it. It's a Galateans, yes. Absolute water. A positive. Last time. <laughs> oh, that was so cute. You guys said the same thing at the same time. Um, maybe it is more than water. I don't know. Found it. Found uh, Galatians. I'm sorry for that awful intro. I'll do my better job um, next time. So I'm going to take a sip of this. Oh, man, that makes me feel so good. There's got to be something in that. Have you ever have you ever set out for something insanely awesome? You had all of your heart, uh, mind, and, and will dedicated to this thing, only for it not to happen, and then you had to settle for something a little less, something you still enjoyed, but you had to settle for something a little bit less? Um, I'm sorry. I had, uh, I, had that, I had that experience a little while ago. Now, uh, somebody that I care about very deeply told me that The Freshmen of Bel-Air was going to air on Netflix, and I got so excited because I've been looking for something new, old to watch, and I was just like, I, I love my boy, Will. I love Carlton, Aunt Viv. Come on, Uncle Phil. And so I got so excited that I almost started fasting for this thing to happen, right? And so I get so, I get so amped, and uh, I, I think it was Asha that told me. I can't remember. And so I'm, I'm ready for the new release to come out. And I go on Netflix, and guess what's not there? Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And, and, I, and, I, and I turned to Asha, and I was just like, I thought, I thought this was coming out. She was like, they lied. And I went, but, but that was going to be my, ne my next season. Like, that's going to be the next thing that I'm going to watch. And have you ever felt so disappointed about the next thing you were going to binge? Every day. I'm just, you got to do something with your life, man. Um, <laughs> but I, I just got so sad. Um, and so I ended up settling for watching Friends. And Friends isn't a bad show. I love Friends. Some people have called me Chandler. I disagree. But uh, so, I, so I was watching Friends uh, because Fresh Prince of Bel-Air is not on Netflix. And uh, there was one particular episode that I watched the other day. And it was just so funny. You guys remember when Monica is making holiday candy for her neighbors? No? All right. So it's in season seven. Monica's making holiday candy. And so this is basically the summation of the episode. Monica has this desire to get to know her neighbors that live in the same building she does. And so she makes this insanely good holiday chocolate for them. And she leaves them in a basket outside, her, uh, outside of her door. And before she knows it, it's all gone. And she gets so happy. And now more and more people are waking her up in the middle of the night wanting... Uh, this chocolate, like there are lines forming outside of her room, uh, outside of her apartment. Uh, people are willing to break down the door. Like throwy, Joey threatens her, uh, threatens her life for this chocolate. Like she, she gets really, really popular out of this uh, chocolate. And what that, what ends up happening is that uh, the the demand for the chocolate is so high, and Monica can't stop making chocolate because she started off wanting to just do something nice for her neighbors, but then her neighbors started liking her a lot. They started giving her this insane amount of attention and approval, and she went, oh, like, I can't give this up. Like, I have to make, I have to make this chocolate. And if you're unfamiliar with, with that episode or with the show, uh, the, there's this one particular scene that I found to be so funny and very, very reflective of our lives, and we're going to show it for you just so you can get a visual.
Hey, there's uh, some people outside asking about candy. Well, they're just gonna have to wait, aren't they? I only got two hands. <laughs> Need some help? No, you don't know the system. Don't be nobody messing with the system. By the way, the week before your wedding, you may not see a lot of me. You can cut it. That next scene had nothing to do with my message. But Monica was a mess in her own home, right? Like, she was just absolutely frantic. She's working on, like, seven or eight different batches of candy as Ross walks in. And his attempt to help her, she's just like, get out of my face before I punch you in the face. And so I, I looked at that, and uh, truth be told, I, I feel like I had a God moment while I was watching Friends in my pajamas. And God was like, doesn't that seem a lot like your life? Like, aren't you frantically running around trying to do things and you're just tired, you're overworked, you're frustrated. You just feel like you're about to snap. And when the people that love you come close to you, you're like, get get away from me. And far too often, I feel like my life looks like Monica, just frantically in the kitchen trying to preserve the little amount of approval and validation I can get from people. But the demand is too high and I just can't, I just can't do it. And I feel like far too often our lives look like that. Like we're trying to preserve something and we're trying to hold on to something so dear that we just get frantic, we get tired, we get frustrated, we get irritable, and far too often we are Monica in the kitchen. Tonight I want to talk a little bit about sustenance. I want to talk about the things that sustain us, the things that truly can sustain us, and the things that we, we believe will sustain us but but never do. And I think tonight's passage very beautifully outlines our need for sustenance and where we fail to find it. Because I think for a lot of us that have never heard the gospel before, have never heard the love story written by Jesus, paid for with his own life, I think a lot of us find it really, really hard to find sustenance. But at the same time, a lot of us who are Christians in the room, a lot of us who have responded to the gospel, we feel as though we've gotten Jesus, but it's up to us to keep our relationship going, to keep our sustenance going. And, and tonight, I want to I wanna shatter both of those uh, misinformed myths. And so we're going to read this. I'm going to pray because obviously I need uh, prayer. I'm a mess, and you're going to see why in a few moments. And we're just going to dive right into this passage. So if you'll jump to Galatians 3 with me. If you don't have your Bibles with you, if you don't have it on your phones, you can participate by reading it off the screen as well. I'm only going to read three verses because I don't like reading. Everybody knows that. So it's three verses. I'm going to pray. We're going to do this. It's going to be fun. So starting at verse 1 in Galatians 3, I love how Paul opens up. He criticizes them. He makes fun of them. He says, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your very eyes that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing it with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Let's pray. God, as I stand here, uh, already nervous and, and, and irritable because for some reason I feel as though I feel as though I have to manipulate this crowd to get some sort of response to make me feel like I'm, um, I'm worth something. And, and if I can be so honest, God, I pray that that be removed from me. God, I ask that 
that I don't come here out of a position to take from the people that are here, but I come in a position to give because we are far so desperate for things and we just don't find satisfaction in them. And so God, today I pray that this not be a moment of me finding no satisfaction in you, but me walking out of an abundance of satisfaction that I have. And so God, I ask that as as we gather around your word for the next few moments, as we talk and as we listen to what you have to say to us, I pray that our lives be changed. I pray that things that don't need to be there don't remain there. And I pray that we find more sustenance in you. God, we thank you. And in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'll drink to that. It's water. Uh, I want to give us a little bit of context before we before we continue. I know some of us can kind of get lost in uh, really what's going on. Some of us aren't even Bible people. We don't look at the Bible. We don't read the Bible. And that's completely fine if you're that person here. Maybe tonight will change your opinion on the Bible. But what's going on right now is that Paul is the author of this letter. The book of Galatians is a series of different letters that Paul wrote and one of the letters he wrote was to this church in a place called Galatia. And some years ago, Paul went on this missionary journey, and one of the churches that he planted on that missionary journey was this particular church. And for a while, this church was doing it really, really, really well. They had received their identity in Christ so well. They had received the Spirit. They were doing some transformative things. Lives were being renewed. Things were being restored. And, excuse me, Now it gets to this point that the Galatians hit a little bit of a hurdle. There's a a bit of a problem that, that happens, and Paul begins to address it. And what Paul says is that they've become foolish and they've become bewitched. Something has gone wrong with their understanding of God and their understanding of themselves, and that's led them to foolishness and bewitchery. And so now we're going to go all Scooby-Doo, Mystery Incorporated, and try to figure out what is the cause of this bewitchery. What has caused the Galatians to be so foolish? Because that's going to illuminate why oftentimes we find ourselves to be foolish, how we may even find ourselves to be bewitched. And so in Paul's original question, what has bewitched you? Or in the Greek, it could also be translated as who has bewitched you. What Paul is actually asking is, what has taken your focus off of the gospel that you know and put it on something else? What has taken your gaze off of the main important thing and switched it to something else? Paul is asking, what has distracted you? And that answer comes with two implications. There's an obvious uh, implication, and then there's a less obvious one that we're going to talk about. The obvious implication is that at the time, there, were this, there was this group of people called the Judaizers. And there were these religious uh, and political and, and spiritual leaders that had convinced these Galatian Christians that they didn't just need Jesus any longer. They needed Jesus and something else. And these people didn't just get a, a small... Uh, fan following, a small platform, these people were big enough that the theological foundation of the church began to shift. Like that, that is prominence. That is like Twitter certified. Like these people had power when they spoke. And so when Paul gets news that the people that, the people have started believing something that's not true, he has to address it. And he speaks out of such passion and such frustration and care for his people. And so for the first answer, what has distracted them? It's this group of people called the Judaizers. They've taught them that their relationship with God has to be sustained through their works, through something called the law. But the less 
less obvious answer is that they weren't just distracted in their actions. Their gaze wasn't just taken off, which delayed their actions. Oftentimes, a, a distraction means something that takes your attention off of something else. But most of the time, a distraction implies that you're going to put your attention back on the thing. Like, I can distract myself from my homework by watching Netflix for 32 hours straight, but then I'll eventually go back to doing my homework, right? The distraction that Paul is talking about here, the bewitchery that he is talking about here, is not just something that delayed the physical actions of the Galatians. It's actually something that shifted their very being. The thing that made them who they were changed, and this is the thing that Paul is addressing. They weren't just physically distracted, they were spiritually distracted. To their very being, something had shift, and this is the thing that he begins to address. And, and I think in a lot of ways, we can, we can relate. For some of us in this room that are, that are God people, that we are believers in the life and teachings of Jesus, we can also get distracted, but not just by our physical actions. Like, yes, there are times where I'd rather watch Netflix than read my Bible. There are times where I'd rather talk to people than pray to God. Like, I'm not talking about physical practices that we end up doing later on. I'm talking about when we get spiritually distracted from the gospel, we don't just fix our eyes back onto the gospel later on. We eventually fix our eyes back to something else. And that's exactly what these Galatians did. They had the gospel, took their eyes off of the gospel, and then put it on something else. And this thing that they put their attention on was called the law. And for the, just the biblical implications of uh, this message, I want to talk a little bit about what that law was. And so back in ancient Israel history, uh, what had happened was the people of God were enslaved by the Egyptians for like 400-something years. And so 400 years into their slavery, God enacts this stellar social justice plan to free his people through this dude named Moses. Now, Moses comes up as a religious and political leader for Israel, and he also works as like this telephone cable between God and his people, communicating and delivering messages to them. And so one of the messages that Moses delivers to his people is this law. It's the Ten Commandments, starting with the first and most important one, worship no other gods than the God of Israel, Yahweh. And so this is what the... Israel people, this is what the Jewish people built their entire religious, ethnic, and political identity on. These Ten Commandments, which end up being 700 and something laws later on that they built around as a nation. And what this, what this tells us is that they, instead of going back to the grace of God that was given to them through Jesus, they put their faith back into that, that law. And I know some of us get a little bit distracted or a little bit disconnected from the biblical story when we start talking about things that really have no applicable value to us. Some of you in this room are like, I'm not Jewish. I don't care. I don't read the Bible. I don't care. Like, what does this have to do with me? Well, I think for some of us in this room that are, that are Christians, we need to be ultimately concerned with this law because all of us break it. And that's exactly what happened to these people. Nobody could live up to the law. And you'll read that further as we go into the book of Galatians. But up until this point, nobody had ever lived up to the law. And anybody could try to, but nobody actually could because breaking the law meant you broke the first commandment. And if in this room you're a Christian and you think, well, I don't really think that that's a problem. I think I'm a little bit stronger than they were. I'm a little bit more progressive than they were. I don't struggle with the same things they struggled with back then. I actually want to 
invite you to partake in this little diagnostic exercise with me, just to show you that we are all on the same boat when it comes to breaking the first commandment. Have you ever been in a room, maybe you find yourself here tonight thinking this way, have you ever been in a room that you didn't know everybody, and the moment you start walking in, whether it be, you know, like a restaurant, or whether it be some cocktail party, whether it be the club, whether it be a bookstore, whether it be, you know, with one of Christian's force of will game hangout things, like wherever, shut up, wherever it is, like have you ever found yourself with a group of people that you didn't know, and to try and fit in, you start sizing yourself up comparing yourself to the people that are there. You start asking yourself like, well, where do I fit within this social strata? Like, how do I, how can I be myself here? Who can I be here? Like, what is the way that these people are giving value and how can I be that person? You may even find yourself in here tonight going, ah, well, these are like church people and I don't really get get along with church people because I'm not a church person. Or these people are of one specific ethnicity or they have one specific interest and I don't really have that interest. I'm not that ethnicity. I'm much older than these people or I'm not as mature as these people. I don't deserve to be here because of what I've done. Wherever you find yourself within within that story, the punchline is the same for all of us. In that moment when we're asking, where can I, what, what kind of value can I get here? Who can I be in this moment? I don't fit in here. You've successfully allowed something other than God to define your worth and value and standing in that moment. And if that doesn't convince you, has anyone ever asked you to listen to a song or watch something and later when they ask you if you've done it and you haven't, you lie and say that you have? Happens to me all the time, especially when it comes to theology and politics and debates. Anthony will come into the office and he's like, oh, did you hear what Trump said last night? And I'd be like, yeah, he said the best stuff. His words were so good. And Anthony will go, what? How dare you think that? Meanwhile, I haven't actually watched the debate. I didn't listen to what Trump said. I didn't listen to any of that stuff. But in order to preserve my standing before Anthony so he doesn't think I'm not cultured, he doesn't think I'm not up in the times, just because, just so I can preserve his up in the times. I don't know what that means. Um, But just so, just so in Anthony's eyes, I don't look like a bum. I'll, I'll lie and say, yeah, no, I, I totally did the thing that I actually didn't do. Again, in that moment, I've successfully allowed Anthony to define my worth and value, and I'm trying to preserve that worth and value, and I've completely forgot about what God has said about me. I've elevated something other than what God has to say about me. Uh, I've elevated what someone else has to say about me over what, what God has to say about me. And I've submitted, I've, I've submitted myself to some kind of, some kind of law, and I've, and I've broken it. And if you're in this room and you're irreligious, you're like, I don't really care about breaking God's law. I, don't, I couldn't care less. Screw God. That's not really my thing. Well, you subject yourself to another kind of law anyway. Regardless of whether it's God, you subject yourself to some sort of law. And here's what I mean. If your main drive in life is the approval of people, you've subjected yourself to where you can get their approval from. So if you find yourself at a sporting event and all they care about is the sport that's playing, you will be forced to like that sport. Or if you're around people that are just talking about the Bible, talking about scripture, you'll, you'll tend to have more of a desire to talk about those things and talk about scripture because that's how you get approval. If you're sitting in a classroom and you're thinking, okay, well, the person that is the smartest here gets the most attention, I will do that. 
So even though you're not submitting yourself to God's law, you're submitting yourself to the law of approval, and you have to try and live up to that. But if it's not approval, it could be comfort. Trying to forever preserve the comforts in your life, trying to make it so that your life is not difficult, make it so that your life is safe and your life is secure. And you constantly have to work at it and till to it until it becomes comfortable. And the moment it's uncomfortable, you're crushed. It feels awful. The moment you don't get approval, you feel like you're worthless. See, you don't have to subject yourself to to God's law to realize that you can't live up to it. You can't even live up to some of the laws that you subject yourself to. And I think that's the fundamental flaw with the law to begin with, that we really can't live up to anything that we subject ourselves to. Because if we get it, we'll have almost killed ourselves in the process. And when we don't get it, we'll just feel so worthless. And I think one of the big reasons why the law itself doesn't work is because it promotes this it promotes this selfishness within us that it's what we need first. You guys get what I mean? Like if my approval is a thing that I care about, I will leverage that just to make sure I get it in return. So I'm not actually having a conversation caring about the things that you care about. I'm having a conversation with you so that it can gain your approval. I'm still in the driver's seat. And I think because we operate that way, it brings dissatisfaction to us because we operate very comparatively. And what I mean by that is we often we often work based off of other people. C.S. Lewis says this quote, that nobody wants to be rich. Everybody just wants to be richer than someone else. And I found that to be so, I found that to be so profound in the way that my desires work because, because it's true. Have you ever scrolled through like Instagram or Facebook or Pinterest and found yourself wanting things that you didn't originally want? All the time. I'll go through Instagram and I'll see that somebody was just on vacation and I'll go, man, like that beach has like the sunsets, like 17 different colors. Like when was the last time I was on vacation? I'll scroll through and I'll see that like just the other day, like Andrew came into the office and he had this vinyl player. And I was just like, man, I don't have a vinyl player. Like now I want a vinyl player so I can put all my vinyls on it. I don't have any vinyls. Well, now I want some vinyls. And so... Like, far too often I'm scrolling through social media just wanting random things. It's like a fidget cube. I don't need a fidget cube in my life, but after I see a picture of it, I'm like, this is the greatest invention ever. And I hear the fidget cube in the background, too. And so, like, I I, I feel like nowadays we live in this culture of instantaneous dissatisfactions. Because when we're scrolling through things and when we look at stuff that we want, we immediately realize the lack in our lives. And the things that we do have seem almost obsolete in, in comparison. And, and I think what a great exercise is to look at your desires and ask yourself why you have those desires in, in the first place. Because far too often, I think that's something that all of us know, but it's something that that we just that we just overlook. Like we realize that we have a desire, but we never ask ourselves why we have that desire in in the first place. And because we operate so comparatively, 
it makes finding satisfaction all the more difficult. It makes it finding it all the more difficult because we start to, when you start to apply that to other areas of your life, you'll begin to see some, some unhealthy patterns. Like for example, when you're so obsessed with losing weight, it's not really the weight that you're trying to lose is the thing that you're after. You're actually operating out of a dissatisfaction of your image and you think losing weight will help you get there. Or if you're so consumed with the need to make more and more money, it's not necessarily the money that you're after. It's this idea of, of some type of security you believe that you need to have that money can provide for you. Or when you look at your own ethnicity and you get discouraged because you feel like you're not ethnic enough, it's not taking pride in your ethnicity and bringing the good qualities of, of who you are into your being. It's comparing yourself to people of your ethnicity that do more than you, that are more ethnic than you. But that comes out of some sort of law, some sort of things that you subject yourself to that says, this is what you have to be. See, when we, begin to, when we begin to think in these terms, when we begin to realize these, these things, we, tar- we start to see my dissatisfaction isn't really coming from the thing that I want. My dissatisfaction is coming from the lack that I have. And I think that's what's so problematic with the law because you can't live up to the laws that you subject yourself to because it's almost unsatisfying every single time. And that's Paul's concern with his with his church. He's saying, don't subject yourself back to the law of God because it's not going to satisfy you. It doesn't have the power to satisfy you. And so am I saying don't try and lose weight? Absolutely not. Am I saying don't pursue money? Definitely not. And give it to me. And But like, am, am I saying don't take pride in your ethnicity? No, I'm not even saying don't try to live up to God's law. We should, we should try our best to exhibit God's law. But what I'm saying is that we shouldn't rely on having to to do that. We shouldn't rely on having to lose weight for our ultimate approval. We shouldn't have to rely on money for our ultimate security. We shouldn't have to rely on these things for something because they're not going to satisfy us. And Paul has had this realization and he's trying to communicate that to his church. And I find it just so interesting because Paul asks it in this way in verse 3. He says, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with, with faith? I love the contrast that Paul gives because he says, did you work with your hands or did you, did you hear it with your ears? Because when you achieve something with your hands, there's an action there. You worked for it. But when you receive something with your ears, there's passivity there. Paul is saying, will you remember that your dealing with God wasn't something that you attained on your own, but it was something that was imparted to you. It was something that was given to you. It was something that you didn't have to work for. It was something that was graciously put on your laps. And I think far too often, Anthony, if you want to come up here, I'm going to come to an end soon. I think far too often we, we turn our dealings with God into that. We've received salvation. We've had those encounters with God. We've put our faith in Jesus, so as it's said in every church. But when we live our lives, it's like we have to do it on our own. It's like we have to strive and labor for 
keeping our satisfaction, keeping our approval, keeping our our comfort. And it's not because God hasn't given that to us. It's because we fixed our eyes off of the gospel and put it onto something else. And so Paul's biggest concern is, guys, don't, don't rely on this thing anymore because it's not going to satisfy you. But then Paul gives the, the answer as to, what, as to what will satisfy you. The second half of verse 1, Paul says, it was before your very eyes that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. The solution that Paul offers from the demands of the law, the solution that Paul offers to their need for approval and comfort, and the solution to their dissatisfaction comes from pointing their eyes back to, back to Christ. It's pointing them back to the gospel because how it began is how it continues. See, oftentimes we think that we have to add biblical qualities and we have to add spiritual disciplines to our lives and then we can continue moving forward. But what Paul is saying is add the gospel to those areas of your life. And I just want to use two just really, really quick examples on, on how this can kind of play out and how we've made it play out wrong. And the first area I want to talk about is, is anger. Because I know nobody in this room struggles with anger. Absolutely not. And as you think about that, I'm going to take a sip of my absolute Shut up. When it comes to when it comes to anger, the traditional approach is God, I'm angry. Please take away this anger from me. Or God, these people make me angry, so please remove these people from my life. God, I'm just so upset. Take me out of this bad place and put me in a better place. See, our our approach is God, just help me be stronger at dealing with my my emotions dealing with my anger and if and if you think that's what your solution is i'm sorry but you're just a byproduct of this instant gratification culture that our our blessing has to arrive quicker than the pizza does like it's just that's just not the way that it works and if you read through the book of psalms you can count on one hand how many times god just removes a problem from a person's life See, oftentimes anger is is a secondary emotion that we that we have to cover up the actual thing that we feel like is is threatened. So let's say our biggest drive is approval. The moment someone or something comes that takes away our approval, we get angry. Or let's say our biggest drive is comfort. The moment something comes in to disrupt our comfort, we get angry. So our biggest problem is not anger. Our biggest problem is that we are trying to seek comfort and approval in something that can't give it. And so applying the gospel to this area says, God, what is it that I feel like I need to have in this moment that's not you? What is it that I feel like I need to obtain? What is being withheld from me? What is, what is having such a grip in my life where I feel like if I don't have it, I'm, I'm worthless. And when you begin to identify that, when you begin reminding yourself of the gospel, that's when true transformation comes. That's when the change begins to happen. And another very practical area I want to apply this to is in the area of, of pornography. All throughout today, just for some 
I mean, awful, but at the same time, great reason. Um, both mine and Jared's small groups are one groups. We we just started talking about pornography and just our struggles with it and how frustrating it is and how disgusting we feel afterwards. And, and when it comes to pornography, in that moment, we've successfully reduced the character of a person to the shape and size that they are. We've completely dehumanized them. But when we talked about pornography, that wasn't our... That wasn't really our, our problem. For some of us, it was that in that moment, in that fantasy, we felt so approved by somebody. For, other, for others of us, because our comfort was threatened, because our security was threatened, we turned to something else for security. And so the, tr- the traditional approach is just stop watching porn, go destroy your computer and get an accountability partner. And like, And that's great and fine, but you never attack the root of the problem with that approach. But the gospel says that when you are feeling worthless, God has provided you with worth and value. When you feel as though your security has been disrupted, God has provided you that security. God has given you a foundation that can last. And you may ask me, well, how do you know that that's true? How do I know that God has imparted me with this approval? How do I know that God has given me this amount of love? How can I trust this security of God. It's what Paul is urging the Galatians to do, which is to look to the gospel. And Paul isn't just saying, remember that Jesus died for you, because we hear that just about every week. Jesus died for your sins. Repent and go. But what Paul is saying is don't just recollect on the objective facts that Jesus died. He's saying, remember why he died. Because the most important questions in life you can ask isn't what, it's why. Why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? That is the answer that you desperately need to know. And the reason why he died is because he loves you. See, you are never going to find Jesus beautiful. You are never going to understand the satisfaction of the gospel unless you begin to see how much Jesus was willing to lose for you. There's this beautiful moment and it's awful for Jesus but it's beautiful for us there's this beautiful moment where Jesus is broken bloody bludgeoned and he's hanging on the cross right and for the first time in his entire existence the son of God couldn't call his father father any longer he had to call him God and here's why Because Jesus knew if in that moment he had cried out to his father, he would have seen that his father had already turned his back on him. You see, when you you lose a a really great friendship, it hurts and it sucks, uh, but you get over it after a while, right? Most of us do. When you lose a, a relationship with a significant other or a girlfriend or a boyfriend, it hurts a little bit more. It's a little bit more painful, but give it time, we, we get over it. See, the greater the relationship, the greater the pain that is felt when that relationship is gone. And when Jesus was hanging there on the cross, he was moments from losing the greatest relationship one could ever have with someone else. For all of eternity, Jesus had been in this beautiful communion, this beautiful cosmic dance with his father. And for one moment, he gazes up to heaven and sees that his father is gone. Jesus' death on the cross wasn't just a prick to his being. It wasn't just a stab to his being. It was a total disintegration of his being. And that was Jesus' biggest picture to tell you and I, I love you. 
See, now we can know that we have approval in God because Jesus gave up the approval of his own father. We can know that we have security in God because Jesus gave up his heavenly security so that you could have it. We can have control in the gospel because Jesus gave up his control so that you can have it. You may recollect on the fact that Jesus died all you want, but until you begin to understand why he died, how much he was willing to lose for you, you're never going to find the gospel beautiful. And that's Paul's biggest concern. And that's my biggest concern for you guys. Because we find going through life so difficult because we forget this beautiful message that although we weren't worth dying for, somebody did die for us. That although we can't find satisfaction in anything, the greatest being of satisfaction willingly gave his life for you and I. You see, your biggest problem is not that you don't try hard enough. It's that you don't believe well enough. And the thing that you fail to believe is that God truly loves you is that God is there for you, is that God wants to do something amazing in your life. And that started with doing the worst thing in his life. You see, until you begin to realize that, until you can fix your gaze on the cross and see why Jesus died for you, your life is going to look absolutely the same. You may change your behavior a little bit, your patterns may change, but your heart isn't going to. Are you ready to believe that tonight? Are you ready to see the cross as more than just objective knowledge that Jesus died? But are you ready to look at the cross and say, you died because you were so madly in love with me? If you guys could close your eyes and bow your heads. And the reason why I'm doing this is just so that you can have uh, just a sheer moment of, of, of honesty and, and intimacy with yourself. We live in a day and age where it's very hard to get a moment of quiet, really hard to get a moment to yourself. And, and I wanna provide this for you if you, don't, if you don't get those moments often. And simply what I wanna ask you in this moment of sheer intimacy between you, yourself, and God is, is the cross beautiful to you? Have you heard your entire life that Jesus died for you, but has, has the why ever moved you? Has it ever brought you to an appreciation and a, and a gratefulness to who God is and what he was willing to, to lose for you? Like how personal is that? Like you specifically sitting in the seat that you are, thinking the thoughts that you are, you were worth dying for because God desperately loves you. Do you find getting through life just so difficult? Are you finding your sustenance? Are you finding dissatisfaction everywhere you look? My challenge to you is tonight, are you ready to look at the cross and see what that means in your life? I want you guys to take the next few moments and, and think about that, meditate on it. I, I really want this to be a moment where you feel like you can hear from God. And if you don't know where to start, I think I think the prayer that is the most answered in heaven is help. So if you don't know where to start, just start by asking for help. <laughs>